The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Forums podcast, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to June's Home Cinema Podcast. Coming up, we look in detail and discuss items we've reviewed recently, as well as discussing the grammar of 3D film and TV production. And joining me for this month's Home Cinema Podcast, uh, Russell Williams, Mark Hodgkinson and Steve Withers. Good evening, guys. Evening, Phil. Evening, Phil. Hi, Phil. It's the Home Cinema Podcast. We're going to talk home cinema. We've got some stuff to go through in terms of reviews. Let's talk Toshiba, Mark. It's one of these brands that's been around since the dawn of TV, yet um, seems to be not a lot of interest in Toshiba models these days. Yeah, that's right, Phil. They're a pretty much totally unfashionable brand these days, unfortunately, which is... Uh, it's a bit of a shame because they do put out some decent displays. The 853, it was uh, it was a back to basics thing. There was no uh, MCFI solutions, very little in the way of internet widgetry. There was some good calibration controls, held up its black levels really well in um, in ambient lighting conditions. Just a good all round telly, really. Just a sort of harking back to three years ago, and it uh, it did most things right. Little bits, little bits. Uh, Suspicious on um, fast-moving sport content and video content, but nothing, uh, nothing much worse than what else is out there. It's it's interesting you mentioned back like three years ago. I, I remember reviewing the, the the old picture frame Toshiba's, and at the time they they were extremely good LCD TVs, very nice looking, um, hardly any bezel. It seems to be the way that Samsung's gone this year with their TVs, but Toshiba, funnily enough, were there first, and then just seem to let go in terms of their, their market position. Yeah, that's right, Phil. Um, I don't think they did a great deal with the design of, of this, of the RL range, but I think they're uh, looking a bit higher with some, some designer TVs higher up the range. So, I mean, coming later this year, we do have the Cell TV coming from uh, Toshiba. I managed to see them when I was over for the, the European launch event uh, back in June. Um, like you say, I mean, it looks like they have some solid models there. Interestingly, uh, Steve, they also have uh, auto calibration on board, which is completely different to, to how Kalman are doing it with uh, the Panasonics. Uh, the Toshiba approach is to plug in a probe directly into the TV, and the TV does everything and, and rewrites the lookup tables. Yeah, absolutely, Phil. And I, I guess it's an interesting development that uh, manufacturers are starting to take things like calibration quite seriously by building in these, these automated procedures. Um, I, I guess the... Uh, the Toshiba approach is, is a lot more um, more accessible to to general users than, than perhaps having Kalman software and, and and your own um, your own your own equipment. So uh, yeah, it's an interesting development, and hopefully more manufacturers will, will get on board in terms of, of doing that. I think. So I mean, that's that's a TV that um, obviously we're going to look at when it becomes available. It's it's out quarter three, around about August time. But in terms of this RL series, I mean, you said it, it's pretty much steady, middle of the road, um, but you did give it a badge, so it, it must perform well in certain areas, Mark. Yeah, yeah, I'd say it's, it's a really a really good all-rounder, really. Um, it, it's just did very little wrong, and compared to some of the things you do see with uh, maybe some undefeatable MCFI or, or stuff like that, it was just a good old back-to-basics telly, a, a good, good solid price. You're going to have to explain what MCFI is for people. Sorry, it's a motion interpolation to... Sort of uh, make up for LCD shortcoming in handling 
fast uh, fast moving objects. Yeah, and not a bankrupt uh, furniture provider. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, so we'll move on from the Toshiba. Uh, Steve, you looked at Samsung Plasma. Uh, now, Samsung really pushing LED uh, at this moment in time. Uh, they have been for the last two years. I mean, trying to get hold of a, a Samsung Plasma last year was like uh, gold dust. The D8000, a 51-inch, not 50-inch, but 51-inch D8000, um, how did it stack up? Well, it's interesting, Phil. As you say, it's a 51-inch. Um, it's not actually any bigger than the 50-inch last year. It's actually that the bezel is about an inch smaller, thus showing you an inch more uh, TV. Their, their logic being that it will therefore fit into the same space you may have already had for the previous TV, which I, which I guess makes sense. Uh, it's got the same design as last year, the, the, the brushed aluminium look with... Um, um, yeah, not my cup of tea, uh, to be honest. The, the feet look like a Cylon base star to me, but I suppose it does serve its purpose in that it, it stands out amongst the crowd when you're in the shop floor. Um, it doesn't come with the snazzy remote that's being shipped with the US model, which is a bit of a disappointment. It comes with a very basic, uh, very basic remote control, the concept being that obviously you, you buy it as an accessory uh, if you want it. Um, of course, a lot of people these days are using, uh, using their iPhones, or iPods, iPads, or whatever Androids to control uh, equipment. So, and you can do that with, with the Samsung. So that is an alternative to having to buy the expensive uh, remote. Uh, in terms of performance, uh, very good. Um, I mean, always Samsung's have been quite strong in terms of video processing. And once again, that's the case. Um, their their um, actual uh, software is all in-house. In fact, I think everything on that TV is pretty much in-house, um, but it performs very well. Um, Good calibration controls, uh, excellent uh, excellent after calibration in terms of grayscale and color. Uh, really good CMS, really like that. Um, the only thing I would probably comment on is the black levels were basically about on the, the same as last year, which is a bit of a disappointment when you consider how much Panasonic are pushing it in terms of their black levels this year. Um, that would be probably its only real weakness. Uh, to be fair though, compared to Panasonic, both LG and, and Samsung's black levels have never been that great. Um, still good, you know, still better than your average uh, LCD or anything like that, but uh, but it'll probably be my, my one comment would be that. Otherwise, though, it's a good, good, solid um, pl plasma um, smart TV on it, of course, this year, as a bit, as every other manufacturer. Uh, and uh, I think Samsung's is a very good platform. I, I actually found it really useful. Um, I've never been a big fan, uh, but it started to win me over a little bit. I mean, I found things like iPlayer HD was was really good, and and there was you know all the other video on demand services. Uh, you could search for. Um, for a content and it would look through both the program guide and also online uh, if you go to something say like youtube it will find the highest resolution um, material available so i was quite impressed with them um, with their smart tv platform um so all, all around um yeah really good uh, really good display I, I was quite pleased with it and of course not forgetting it's a it's a 3d display steve and oh, yeah sorry uh, <laughs> good point. You, you had the the lg in um at the same time as this now the lg being passive this one being active um, anything interesting that you found yeah, I did actually do side by side comparison because the um, the Panasonic Blu-ray player, 3D Blu-ray player that we, I've got has got two uh, HDMI outputs, so I can actually run both both displays simultaneously. Um, and I have to say that in the side by side comparison, the first thing you notice or don't notice is any loss of resolution uh, on in terms of the passive display. I, I mean, obviously, if you get up close and look for it, you can. But but to be honest, uh, in, you know, viewing from a normal distance away from the displays. Uh, really wasn't any, you know, you really weren't aware of any loss of resolution at all. And I think that's partly because the additional depth cues that, that you're being given uh, basically trick the brain to thinking the image is more detailed than it actually is. And to be perfectly honest, uh, I had a couple of friends around, who, you know, who are 
total neophytes and, and you know, don't know anything about 3D at all. And both of them uh, preferred the uh, the passive display. They found the concept of the you know the glasses being you know uh, no, no need to charge them or have batteries or to sink them, uh, more comfortable to wear, very light. Forgot you're wearing them. Uh, they thought the image was brighter. They didn't like the flicker that they, they could sometimes see from uh, the, the active shutter glasses. Um, so all around that they, they were resounding yes. And so that's before I even told them how expensive the glasses were on active shutter as well. Uh, so that they, there was a big, big, no, big resounding yes in favour of, of passive from them. And and I I quite enjoyed it too. I'm not knocking uh, active. I mean certainly uh, with a projector, for example, you absolutely need the additional resolution. And uh, you know I, I like I love my X3, which is which is obviously an active shutter 3D projector. But um, but for uh, for sort of 40 to 50 inch TVs uh, with the casual uh, you know consumer, maybe with a large family or young children, I, I can see passive being quite popular. And uh, getting back to the Samsung, I mean, obviously it's an active display, it's a plasma display. Uh, what was it like in terms of uh, of motion? Because, uh, you know, Samsung haven't been pushing the fact that they use faster phosphors or anything like that. So how was it for crosstalk and so on? There was definitely some crosstalk. Um, I was using, uh, as quite a good example, I was using um, Resident Evil Afterlife, um, which uh, has some subtitles at the beginning when they're in Japan. And on the subtitles, which obviously is white against the black bars of the uh, of the 2.35 to 1 image, uh, you could clearly see uh, crosstalk on the uh, subtitles on the on the Samsung. Uh, interestingly, you couldn't on the LG. So uh, so that was that was an interesting test. And yeah, so there was a little bit of crosstalk. Uh, brightness wasn't wasn't fantastic either. Obviously, with the glasses on, it was a little bit dim. I mean, LCDs obviously have an advantage there. So uh, but uh, so I'd say that the 3D was good. But not as good as as we're seeing on the Panasonics. Having said that, of course, it doesn't have any problems with 50 hertz, so that's a that's a plus point. If it's just if if you're just looking at 3D, uh, I would say the Samsung is, is one of the weak, not as not as weak as some manufacturers, but certainly uh, not as strong as, as as Panasonic, who clearly have put an awful lot of R and D uh, in, into into 3D themselves. But uh, uh, but I mean a good solid all round performer in terms of 2D and 3D. Lots of discussion on the forums regarding the Samsung uh, for obvious reasons. Quite a few people saying that they had issues with blinking and, and banding and that kind of thing. Now, obviously, you'll have gone and had a look for that. What what were your conclusions there? There was a couple of issues raised on the forums. One was that there were brightness fluctuations. Now, I actually watched the material that they mentioned in, in, in the thread to see if I could see any brightness fluctuations. And to be honest, I couldn't. As far as I could tell, that there were no problems with brightness fluctuations. And in fact, I've noticed that one of the guys who raised that issue has since come on and said that that seemed to have sort of died down in terms of that. So maybe it was just his display. I mean, certainly compared to the brightness fluctuations that I was seeing on the Panasonics, which were very imme obvious immediately, um, I, I didn't see any, any brightness fluctuations at all uh, on the Samsung that I was reviewing. Uh, the banding issue, once again, I didn't see any banding issue apart from when it was actually in the source material. But certainly there was nothing coming from the TV. Uh, I thought it was a good solid all-round image. So, um, so I think neither of those Maybe people have specific problems with a specific panel, but certainly uh, the review sample I had, which came from a, from a retailer, not from the manufacturer themselves, um, it, it, it was fine. Now, talking about uh, awful 3D, I'm just going to go back to Mark quickly because uh, uh, we've just published the review for the EX723, uh, and you were not happy at all with the 3D performance there, Mark. No, it was a shocker. Really bad. I mean, I didn't see the Sony projector you got, um, Phil. You weren't particularly complimentary about the 3D there. I saw a couple of 3D Sonys last year. Not particularly impressed, but things have got worse, if anything. It was 
it was a real mess. So when, when things got moving, the um, the background images were just completely splitting apart into the component left right images, going back in, going back out, and, it, and that was with all material at all times. It was it was basically unwatchable, to be honest. Now that that seems a little bit strange for uh, um, what many people would would consider to be a premium brand offering performance like that on uh, on their 3D TVs. Yeah, they they really need to uh, to uh, catch up quick with the competition and get some. Uh, a fix out there if, if by firmware if possible i don't know if that's possible uh, with the sony's but uh, i know it's something that samsung can do but uh, i'm not sure how the firmware works with sony but yeah they need to uh, to act quickly or they're going to fall way behind and uh, it, lots of talk on the forums uh, regarding the actual glasses and that kind of thing and they are sentenced for the glasses so i mean this, we're not going to doubt your, your testing but I, I take it you went through absolutely everything absolutely everything that. and tried to uh to 3d sources as well so 3d 3d sources i got the pc involved and it was it was just the same really and, and on material i'm very familiar with now i'm uh, i watch certain scenes just to get to get a good idea and, and it really was falling down quite badly which is a shame because the foreground images were quite stunning at times but it was all that seemed at the sacrifice of the background Okay, so uh, that's some of the displays uh, we've looked at. If you want to uh, go and have a look at the full reviews, then it's avforums.com forward slash reviews. We're going to move over to Russell and talk uh, sub-base with a, a well-known brand, uh, certainly on the forums anyway. It's been uh, one of the favourite brands for a number of years now, SVS. Uh, latest model there. Russell, tell us all about it. Um, well, it's their latest small budget model, which is certainly not... Um marketplace they became known in uh, all of their subs all tended to be absolute leviathans and break your back to try and move them uh, it's the sb12 nsd uh, the nsd being their base model line of drivers um it follows pretty much the form of the, of the model that it that preceded it um but this time they've they've changed their amplifiers over to a, another i believe far eastern manufacturer of the digital amps this time called sledge rather than bash um what's in the name not a lot um uh, but it's otherwise just a basic, good, sealed little subwoofer, 425 watts, and packs quite a punch for something its size. Quite impressed so far. Yeah, yet to get down to some serious movie listening with it. I've got to turf the family out for that one, but I'm, what, I've heard, what I've heard with music so far, I've been very happy with. Now, yeah, obviously, SVS are well-known um, on the forums for a number of years now. In terms of performance and, and moving things on over the years, uh, how has the brand coped? Because I, I have to admit... Uh, since the the tubed subwoofer that I had oh, a number of years ago, I've never actually heard uh, any of the previous SVSs. I, I think it was fair to say that um, they delivered immense bottom end punch um, for, for, for for the real estate they took up on your carpet, um, more and at a price far far lower than anything else you could get in sort of the um, in, in the high street, certainly in Britain at the time. What they perhaps lacked really was probably a bit of upper bass finesse. They always tended to sound a little bit disjointed from the speakers. They never sound, you know, I hate to use the word in terms of subwoofers musical because that's as much about the setup of the thing. But um, it never had that sort of quite, they delivered that sort of upper bass kick with something like kick drum in, in the way that some other subs could. Um, what they've brought recently, probably more with their upper end ultra drivers, is that they're, they're, they've started to deliver that, that real um, snap at the top end and added it even more depth punch and grunt to the things i mean someone like their their pb13 ultra i mean if you've got room for one in your house um it's a pretty damn fearsome thing for oh, i don't know what they're asking for them these days i'd actually have to check they were about 1300 pounds over here when they came out but they are you know they're far more complete package than they used to be 
So in, in terms of uh, your review of, uh, of this new compact sub, I mean, what kind of things are you going to be putting it through and what kind of things are you ultimately looking for from it? Uh, I'll mostly be putting stuff with bass through it. No. Um, well, the sort of stuff it's going to get put through is the sort of stuff all of my subwoofers do. Um, they've got to do music, they've got to do films, they've got to do sitting there, maybe even just adding a little bit of tactile reality to something as mundane as EastEnders being watched off um, uh, of BBC HD. Um, you know, I, don't, I don't ever see there's a reason to turn one off. It's going to get to do everything. Now, I mean, the reason I ask that is, you know, there's going to be a lot of our forum members out there who are interested. Subbase is one of these pretty difficult things to get right. Lots of misconceptions around bass as well that it should be in your face and uh, and, and people tend to, to run their subwoofers extremely hot in some cases, certainly in some systems that I've heard in the past. So uh, they're going to be interested in the type of things that, that you do. You said to me before the podcast, you're not a trainer. No, you're not a trainer, but uh, you're uh, an expert when it comes to these things just with the amount of stuff that you have seen and played about with. So what kind of things do you do you look for and uh when you're setting one up um well the first thing i do is is where the room allows is i try to move it around to where it just gives the most even um frequency response free of peaks and dips um without doing anything else to it um you know i tend to use um some some readily available free software online um i couple that with an off-board sound card which is capable of driving a microphone but even that's just a cheap 50 quid um, Behringer ECM 8000 um, and, and, and just move it just try, try and move it around just see where it works best in the room obviously the, you know like most people yeah if, unless you're lucky enough to have a dedicated listening room three foot three foot out from the walls in the middle of the carpet isn't a practical reality so you've got to deal with what you know you've got to deal with the hand you dealt and just put it where it's going to work best within reason. That is one of the reasons why most, you know, I see a lot of people on the forums end up with mahoosive subwoofers they have to tuck away in a corner and actually end up with worse performance than if they've got something slightly smaller they could have put where it, you know, would have just worked better, pure and simple. But, you know, as, as with so many things, cubic inches seem to impress. So and, what would you think is the number one problem then? I mean, you mentioned there that people buying subs are, are, are too big for the room and can't be moved around. I mean, is is that the number one point uh, that people should be thinking about? Is is the room size and the type of subwoofer that they're going to put in there? Um, it is one of them. I, I, I've seen this again with speakers. People try to shoehorn in or, or 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 buy the biggest loudspeaker or subwoofer they can get for their money, rather than the one that's most appropriate for your room. Um, there's no point buying something which delivers. X flat bass response um, designed to be positioned two foot out from a wall. If the only position you've got is hard up against one, um, why buy a sub that you know, performs absolutely flat all the way down to sixteen hertz when your tiny small room's going to deliver massive room gain from thirty hertz downwards and effectively means you've just got something that's twenty decibels louder at twenty hertz than it is at thirty hertz by the time you've got it in there. And you see it time and time again, you know. So. Th- I mean, obviously, this then brings us back to the SVS. It's it's a yep. nice little compact subwoofer. Now, people are going to look at that and think, well, I'm not going to get the type of bass that that uh, that I'm hoping for from a little box like that. Um, well, for starters, it's it's sealed. Um, so beyond the, the combined resonance of of the driver and 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 the box, um, it tails off at a fairly steady steady 12 decibels per octave. That will um, dovetail in with the room's room gain, which ha- which starts to kick in below the low- the room's lowest mode, that being a function of its longest dimension, that effectively brings the frequency response back to level. 
Um, so you get a lot more extension out of a small box than you might imagine. You might be ultimately limited in sheer SPL because you are relying on just the area of the driver to shift the air. But in this instance, you're talking about a 12-inch driver with quite a long throw, quite a lot longer than you can probably find in most subs in the high street. Um, so it makes up for its lack of cubic inches elsewhere. No, it's not going to punch as loud and as low as a 100-litre um, ported box with a similar sort of driver. But then again, you can tuck this one under a table rather than using it as one. Your room is a box. Um, it has opposing walls. Um, there will be certain frequencies where the, the wavelength of the frequency is, is basically um, twice as long as that dimension between the walls. That frequency will start to reflect between the two walls. Um, it gives a resonance. It will ring quite literally like a bell, but the frequency it rings at relates to that wavelength. At that point, you can expect there will be various points between those two walls where it will either deliver massively more bass than the subwoofer is putting out um, or even potentially dips where you sit at the right point it cancels out completely by the time you've factored in three di different dimensions of the room your floor to the ceiling your side walls to side walls your front to back you end up with like a what looks like a choppy sea of different frequencies that that are um, you know massively overblown at one point in the room whilst other ones are massively reduced at the same point these points can be moved around you know, relative to the listening position by moving the subwoofer. It's a bit hard to explain them, really, because obviously they have to start somewhere. You, if you move where they start, then the points at which they cause problems move around. Right, that's room modes. You've, got, you've kind of got to measure them to see them. That, I mean, that's sort of, I suppose, as potted way of putting it as I possibly can. But beneath the bottom room mode, that'll be the one with the lowest frequency, i.e. the one that relates the length of your room, is when something called cabin gain kicks in, or room gain as we tend to call it over here. And that is whereby um, the, the room, how can I put this, the subwoofer rather than just sort of radiating sound in a more normal sort of fashion, moves into pressurising the room. And the smaller the room, it easier is to pressurise, the more that room gain takes off it can be anything up to 12 i think 12 decibels an octave um in this room i'm sitting in here my, my current one it's more like three or four because it's a reasonably large room um but if you heap that on top of a subwoofer which naturally has a big flat response you end up with rising output with descending frequency down to where the subwoofer naturally gives up and then of course it's not putting anything out to, to build up on the smaller subwoofers don't do that as badly as big ones that makes them easier to fit in your average room and certainly a lot easier to fit in small ones Russell, just in the, in the simplest terms, uh, when we're coming to talk talk about what what you're actually explaining there, I mean, the easiest thing a person can do is is get up off the seat and and move around the room, um, and they're going to experience generally what it is that you're talking about there, where where volume peaks and dips and so on within that one room. Yeah, exactly that. That you you will yeah, as you say, generally experience it. Um, Go and jam your head in the corner where all the room modes are strongest, and you'll mass it. You'll notice uh, massive amounts of bass. Um, you'll, you'll find other areas where it actually sounds quite weak. You could stand up and notice it will sound totally different to sitting down in effectively the the same spot. But ultimately, your hearing is extremely poor at discriminating exactly which frequencies are loud and exactly which frequencies are quiet relative to each other um, because th th these these modes can be separated by a, a couple of hertz a, um, a, a cancellation dip in the response can be like 
you know, 24 decibels deep, which sounds, you know, which is like going from very loud to extremely quiet in the space of a few hertz. You know, it's enough to virtually, you know, take out a note on a bass guitar. Um, you move to the seat next door or stand up and suddenly it will reappear. You can't, you can't guess at it, tuning it by walking around the room. It's one of those things that you really do have to measure. And I know that potentially flies in uh, you know, the face of traditional response, which would have us all crawling around on our hands and knees. Um, <laughs> But I'm sorry, it doesn't work. It's one of these things that, um, I mean, obviously gets discussed ad nauseum on the forums um, in terms of how to set a subwoofer up and that kind of thing. But then the day, Ross, I mean, not everybody is going to have, um, even if the software is free, they're not, they're not going to have the will uh, or, or even the, the, the knowledge to get up and actually measure the room. In, in those cases, I mean, what kind of advice are you going to give to people? It, it's it's very much like the device you'd offer to somebody with a TV who couldn't be bothered to play with the controls on it. If you can't be bothered, um, then you're never going to experience what you could really experience out of the subwoofer you've got, never mind the one you could replace it with and think it might be better. Um, and failing that, ask a mate to do it who is actually interested. But uh, it's, it is it is one of those slightly frustrating things you know, because it leads to people going, oh, well, all subwoofers are boomy. No, they're not. That's your room. Um, but yeah, I don't know. If you can't be bothered, is it, as with anything in this hobby, you're never going to hear it at its best. Um, maybe not being bothered was was probably the wrong phrase to use. Maybe uh, they're scared. Um, maybe they don't, you know, fully understand things, and and that does tend to scare people. I mean, we see it all the time with, with calibration of displays. You know, um, if it, if it suddenly sounds technical to people, they they shut their ears and or put their fingers in their ears and start going la 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 la. la. Because it, 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 it's foreign to them. It is foreign, but then everything you've learned in life is at one point. There are a few sort of rules of thumb you can apply, though, to, to subwoofer placement. For example, don't put it in them halfway along a wall. Maybe a third of the way along will, will tend to be better, I think. There are certain things. Well, there's, there's, I seem to recall reading a white paper from Harman Kardon that actually suggested exactly the exact midpoint of the wall was one of the best places. Uh, with, with four. So that was with four subwoofers. No, that was with an optimal four, but they allowed for less, didn't they? Uh, well, I was, um, yeah, maybe, but um, <laughs> uh, certainly on the HAA course, um, that's, that's what... Uh, that's what Everybody seems to have a lot of their own ideas and a lot of them seem to have a lot of validity. I mean, it's like, I mean, I personally would never park a subwoofer in a corner. But then yeah, there a lot of the people I've met who develop the room tuning programs designed to take out um, room modes say, well, the room modes are actually at their simplest when you put the subwoofer in the corner and it's easier to tame the, the basic three that you'll get from parking it in a corner. Yeah, and, I, I guess I mean, the thing is, that, and this applies to all speakers, not just subwoofers, that the room is probably the most important element in the whole thing. Um, you can have the best system in the world, but if it's in, if it's in a rubbish room, it's not been treated, it, it could sound terrible. Uh, I, it's just that with subwoofers, it's even more important where you position them. Um, unfortunately, other things like treating the room with with, um, with absorption material on reflection points, it, it you know, could be a could be impossible if it's say a lounge and you can't start putting up absorption material, or maybe you know it's rented accommodation or you can't you know you can't afford it. So so there aren't there isn't always the there isn't always the option to treat a room, but certainly um, the one thing you can do is where where possible. To try and position your, your subwoofer you know as best for the room it's in um and as you said russell the only way to really do that is to actually take measurements yeah, absolutely i mean you can't you i suppose you could through 
um, in, you know, in just empirical observation, sitting there and listening to the thing, deciding that sounded better than the last position. You'd have to play a rather large range of music at each position and basically finesse your way through to it over time. But yeah, the, the, you know, that's most anybody who's listening to this podcast has got a PC. You've got the most expensive tool you already need. The software's free. You should yeah. already have a £25 sound pressure level meter. That leaves you a 30 quid sound card away from being able to, A, setting up your speakers, A, setting up your subwoofers. And the online tutorials that come with the free package of software that I use um, is absolutely superb. It, it's like a lot of these things. It seems like a massively steep learning curve, but once you actually just start doing it a few times, step by step, it becomes easier until you get to the point, like I did, because I, mean, I was a complete numpty when I first picked this stuff up. Um, I got to a point I thought, Oh God, I've been missing out for years, haven't I? But yeah, you... actually, when you when you do it properly, <laughs> um, I mean, the, the difference in sound quality from even a very mediocre system can be quite staggering. Oh, oh absolutely, I say it's um, you know, uh, how many times have you seen it? I mean, you probably see it with with TVs as well. You know, oh, I'm going to replace yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to replace it with. I'm going to replace it. This will it sound better than my current one? Well, no, because you're going to put it exactly the same point, and you're still in the same room. You'll just end up with more of the problem that you've got now. You know, or people incorrectly say, "Well, it's supported. It's supported subwoofer, so it's boomy. You need to get yourself a nice sealed sub." Well, equally, that's not necessarily true either. Um, it, there's no shortcut to doing it the right way. There is only one right way to do it. Okay, so that's the SVS sub. Uh, you're going to be reviewing that. Um, any kind of ideas when that's going to be live? Uh, hopefully within the next week or so. Um, I've had it in here a wee while, so I just need to kick the family out the door for a day or two, get some serious um, movie action under my belt with some familiar clips, and, uh, and I think we can go from there. Excellent. Uh, so we're going to come back uh, in just a few seconds to join us again, and uh, we're going to talk about... Oh, no, it's 3D again. The biggest news and the best, best, best reviews. Best reviews. Hard, tiring work. You're listening to the AV Podcast. And uh, welcome back. Now, uh, unfortunately, we're going to talk about 3D again. Uh, it seems, seems to be a regular thing on this podcast at the moment. Um, however... Wake up, Russ. Is there a 16th film to watch on it yet? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Drive Angry. Okay, so as uh, Russell uh, goes and has a cup of tea, uh, Steve, uh, you had uh, quite a special invitation. Um, I'm kind of gutted that, that I couldn't go along because it was uh, uh, down in London, but you're obviously better placed for it. You went along to uh, uh, Sony Professional uh, at their invitation to tell us what you saw. Yeah, I did, Phil. I was uh, abs- an absolute treat to uh, Sony invited uh, AV Forums and uh, two or three other um, um magazines down to down to their facility in Basingstoke, their 3D facility. Um, they actually run, they have a number of facilities. They've got one in Basingstoke. They have one in Culver City uh, in, in Los Angeles, which is predominantly aimed at 3D production for movies. The one in uh, in London tends to do more 3D production for live broadcasts and sporting events, that sort of stuff. Uh, they also have a facility it just opened in Mumbai, which is obviously catering towards Bollywood. Uh, and they're about to open one in Hong Kong, which obviously will be catering towards the, the Asian um, the Asian film industry. Um, and they're, they're, the concept behind this is to basically train um, filmmakers and TV cameramen, how and, and edit directors, how to uh, how to actually shoot in 3D, because the the, so the, the the grammar of 3D filmmaking is very different from the grammar you would be familiar with when you're making a 2D movie. Um, and so the whole point of this course is to, basically what we got on on Friday was a condensed version of the first day of this course that, that Sony runs. 
a guy called Paul Cameron was, was running the course. A really interesting guy, absolutely, uh, you know, massive uh, 3D expert. And he basically went through the history of 3D from the very first 3D movie in 1903, I believe, uh, through the first real 3D boom, which was in the 20s. That was the only time that they actually used anaglyph glasses um, uh, for, for theatrical 3D presentation. Anaglyph being the glasses people might be familiar with from sort of magazines and, and, and some occasional attempts at 3D TV back in the 80s, which was uh, basically a red and uh, cyan um, lenses. Or, or you could actually do blue and yellow or, or green and magenta. It's basically the opposite uh, secondary colour from the primary colour. Um, that was the only time that was ever actually used. Every other 3D um, boom over the last uh, 100 years has, has been using polarised glasses. Uh, so the sort of the, the, the common misconception is that people sat there in the 50s wearing those blue and red glasses. It never happened. That, that was never happened. The only time they actually used anaglyph was in the 20s. Uh, that boom obviously died out pretty quickly for a couple of reasons. One, the technology just wasn't there in terms of syncing the projectors and the cameras, but also um, you know the, the quality and and the uh, and 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 the, and the use of, of of 3D cameras. Obviously, they were still developing 2D filmmaking grammar at that point. Never mind 3D. Uh, the next boom well, there was a brief boom in the 30s, uh, late 30s when when uh, at the World's Fair in uh, in New York, Chrysler introduced the first 3D films using polarized glasses. Um, that obviously led to the boom in the 50s, obviously when Hollywood was trying to compete with TV and they were you know, making big cinemascope widescreen movies, but also making 3D films, anything to try and get people away from their TVs and out in the cinema again. Uh, and that was, um, that, that was in the 50s. That, once again, um, the technology was better, but they still had big problems syncing the projectors. Uh, a lot of the production quality on some of the films is pretty ropey, although Hitchcock did make Dial M for Murder in 3D, although unfortunately by the time the film was released, the, the fact that the boom had actually passed. Uh, and in, in fact, Dial M for Murder was never released theatrically in 3D, even though it was shot in 3D. Um, then, of course, the next boom was in the 80s, which a lot of us probably remember, uh, things like Jaws 3D, Amityville 3D, uh, Friday the 13th Part 3D. Um, once again, um, the technology had improved again in terms of capturing the... the, the uh, the, um, the, the the information on, on camera and in terms of syncing 70 millimeter projectors, but uh, but once again I think uh, as as all these things, because uh, it was it was a fad and um, and the production really wasn't quite there in terms of the quality of the films, uh, it kind of died out again quite quickly. Now of course we're into the latest boom, and I think the difference here is is twofold. One one is that a there's there is a genuine technology available for delivering this kind of stuff in the home, which has never been before. But also, obviously, the filmmaking technology itself is much better in terms of you know, digital capture. Um, you can synchronize everything perfectly now. Um, so, so, so and, and if you actually add up all the content, not just movies, but you know, TV, broadcast, uh, games, there's vastly more 3D content available now than there ever has been before. So whether whether this 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 boom lasts or once again dies out like the other ones have is anybody's guess. But it's certainly interesting that uh, you know you know right now we are in uh, probably for the first time in a position where you can create really good 3D content and you can watch it properly uh, in the home environment. So after doing that, he then went on to um, actually um, how 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 we see 3D, um, how the eye how the eye actually perceives depth. And there's lots of different depth cues that are used. And, and, and in fact, stereo vision is the last of eight. There's lots of other things that, you know, we probably don't think about, but things like differences in um, in the color of things, if something might be more vibrant nearby and slightly duller when it's further away, shadows, um, um, things like uh, movement even, which is obviously used in 2D movies and particularly in animation to create a sense of depth. 
So there are all these different cues that the, the, eye, the eye uses and the brain uses to create 3D when we're looking at things. Um, he then talked about um, actual 3D production because when you watch something like Avatar, uh, which you know, really is a 3D masterclass in terms of making a 3D movie, um, you'll see that they do certain things. For example, uh, if you have a very, very deep 3D effect, you then go to a very flat 3D effect before going to another deep 3D effect. You don't go from one very deep 3D effect to straight to another because it, it, it's, it's very confusing for the brain. Um, and that's one of the reasons why you can't just take a 2D film and turn it into 3D. Even if you had the technology to actually create believable 3D, it hasn't been shot as a 3D film. And, and as I said, the filmmaking grammar, the way that you make a movie is completely different. Um, and, and then we actually had a chance, which is really great for us, but we actually had a chance to, to using one of their uh, above and below 3D rigs, we actually shot some uh, 3D footage. Um, in, in, and we, um, we used, um, interestingly, they were using a, uh, we had a, a Sony professional monitor, which of course was passive because uh, when, when you're shooting 3D movies or 3D TV production, they use passive monitors uh, for the obvious reason that you've got more than one person looking at more than one uh, monitor. And obviously with, with, with the active shutter system, that one monitor is synced to that one pair of glasses. So you could have, you know, you can look at two separate monitors with the same pair of glasses on. Um, and, and clearly they are doing that when, they, when they're shooting in 3D. Uh, so, so all the professional monitors are actually passive. Um, so ultimately, it was an absolutely fascinating day, Whether, uh, not just in terms of um, you know, the history of 3D, but also you know, getting, really getting a chance to, to look at the problems that they face Sky, for example, in terms of when they're shooting sporting events, have to be careful when they're going, going to cutting from one 3D camera to another. Um, they, they actually shoot within what they call a, you know, within a sort of a narrow range but with negative and, and positive uh, parallax, i.e. stuff that's in the back of the screen, if you like. But, and stuff that's poking out in the front of the screen because the brain can, uh, you know, too much poking you in the face can, can be, become uncomfortable in terms of the eyes uh, always converging in on the image. But conversely, if you have too much in the far back of the frame, your eyes end up diverging, which is actually very unnatural and quite uncomfortable and not normal at all. So you have to be very careful when you're shooting 3D. Uh, and also when you're shooting 3D, going from a big movie screen to watching it on a TV is fine, but if you're shooting stuff for TV and then projecting on a big movie screen, and that can actually cause a lot of this um, very positive parallax where they have images are very far back in the screen, which, which you don't want to do. So there's lots of um, interesting little, little things they have to think about when shooting in 3D, which you, which you wouldn't even consider when you're shooting in 2D. Um, so yeah, it was absolutely, for me, uh, as, as a sort of a movie fan and, and a, 3D, a 3D fan, uh, it was absolutely fascinating, and, I, and I'm really grateful for Sony for inviting us along and, and giving me a chance to actually uh, not just learn about 3D, but actually have a chance to actually shoot some stuff myself, um, you know, and and um, play around with things like convergence and interaction, which is basically the distance between the two lenses to create different 3D effects. It, it's absolutely fascinating what you can do, and we really are only just now starting to get to the point where uh, where where where, we, where people you know understand how how best to shoot 3D, and it is a developing uh, you know skill set. Which is one of the reasons, of course, why uh, why Sony use um, why Sony run this course. One thing that I didn't realize, which I thought was fascinating, was that when they were shooting the Ryder Cup in 3D uh, Sky, they have a, they had about 26 cameras on, on on the golf course, 3D cameras. But they also had quite a few wireless remote control cameras that were 2D. So they were actually doing 2D to 3D conversion in the broadcast. Although they didn't tell anyone that, but uh, thought that was interesting. I don't know whether people spotted it easily or not, but uh, but that was the case. And unfortunately, I, I did watch the Ryder Cup, and it was like cardboard cutout. Uh, 3D. Oh, you spotted it, yeah. Yeah. Well, no, the whole thing was like cardboard cutout. Oh, the whole, well, that's probably because they were using uh, quite a wide interaxial lens to give a very 
uh, to create a more exaggerated 3D effect. Because I suppose when you're looking at uh, uh, a golf course, basically, um, a lot of it's quite far in the distance. You know, with a very um, narrow interaxial um, distance, it would you wouldn't have much uh, depth in it, really. No, one of the things that that um, always fascinates me when it comes to 3D is uh, is like what you, how you've described it there, Steve, is the, the difference between shooting 2D and, and shooting 3D. Um, now, one of the most common tricks uh, for depth perception that directors use when it comes to 2D is shallow depth of field. And that's where uh, they use the, the focus point of the lens to guide your eyes around the frame that you're looking at. So if it's a two-way conversation and somebody's got their back to you and you're looking at somebody else's face, their face is in focus, but uh, everything in the foreground and background is out of focus. So your eye is drawn to the person that's speaking. Now, that's something that you just can't do with 3D. No, absolutely, Phil. I mean, that, that's a very common uh, approach in 2D filmmaking. In fact, it often gives that film that film-like look, quite often when you're using domestic cameras, you know, there's a very, very deep, uh, very deep focus and, and everything's, everything's in focus in the front and foreground and, and the background. And it doesn't look anywhere near as good as that lovely cinematic effect you get when, you, when you're deliberately drawing the eye onto to one thing in the frame that's in focus. With 3D, obviously, you're, you're actually playing with that depth more because, of course, you want that depth. You don't want things, something to be in focus, the rest of it not to be in focus. You want to deal to, to bring the viewer into the image more. Um, you want to create that sense of depth, so you're absolutely right. Well, they use a much deeper um, field field of focus for uh, for 3D, uh, quite deliberately, in fact. You see, the, the the one thing for me, and I don't know about you other guys, if you've uh, managed to catch any 3D films and and so on. I'm, I'm I know Mark will have. Uh, Russell, have you seen much in terms of 3D films? Yeah, well, I've, I've seen a few demos, and I've been to see one or one or two in the cinema. Uh, the the one thing that that always puts me off and I think it's because like you Steve I come from a a, a traditional focus on, on how things are actually made in 2D is the fact that everything is in focus in 3D um, and and to me that looks fake like I said before cardboard cutout it's because the things in the foreground are in focus things in middle ground are in focus and things in the background are in focus and that's unnatural that's not how we actually see the world yeah, I no, agree with that. It's true, Phil. It's true. Very true. It's true. It's true. And the other thing we don't see in the world is we don't see things with a varying interaxial distance, do we? Our eyes are all broadly fixed between what about sixty and eighty millimeters apart. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm wondering that's if that's right. what partially makes it sometimes feel such a strain to watch it. Your your eyes are being forced into seeing something the way they normally wouldn't. Yeah, that, that, I mean, that, you, that's you what do, I was We do have a depth of, of field restriction. You know, in low light, our irises open up. If I'm looking at my computer screen sitting here now, the TV in the background is blurred naturally, and it's all still 3D. I mean, you'll find that that um, the, the average distance between the two human eyes is, is between 65 and 75 millimetres, as you just said, Russell. Uh, and that was a guess, so it wasn't too sad. Well, you're bang on. <laughs> <laughs> um, and obviously, when you're shooting, a lot of, a lot of time when you're shooting with a 3D camera, you're actually going to be even closer than that. In, in a sort of an average size room, you'd probably have an interactive distance of about 15 millimetres. Uh, 65 would be way too wide. Um, but I mean, obviously, a director can take a stylistic choice. If you watch, for example, um, Resident Evil Afterlife, uh, the director clearly made the decision, along with presumably the stereographer, to actually have quite a wide interactive range to, to create a, a, you know, an artificial enhanced 3D effect. That was, you know, part of the uh, part of the stylistic choice of the movie, and in that particular film, it worked. Clearly, if you were doing some sort of, you know, realistic drama, you you would want to do that. Um, you want to keep it as, as much like real life and, and if, as you possibly could. Um, 
but that, that, as I said, that's part of the evolving skill set that comes with with working in 3D. Now, clearly, uh, Cameron's well ahead of the game in that sense because you know he spent uh, well since Titanic, he'd spent 12 years not just uh, preparing Avatar, but also working in 3D on other things on, on documentaries like Ghosts of the Abyss and, and Aliens of the Deep. So so he'd spent a long time practicing using 3D and 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 developing a film specifically to to showcase 3D. So, so Avatar, you know, was designed for 3D, and, and and that's very obvious when you watch the film and then compare it to films made by people perhaps who, who aren't as experienced in in terms of 3D filmmaking. Um, and it will be able to, hopefully, hopefully it'll get better. But my big fear is that we're getting far too many 2D to 3D conversions, and that's just not right. That's not, as I said, not only are the conversions, you know, do the conversions not look real, but 2D movies. Uh, you know, the filmmaking uh, grammar is, is completely different. So you can't just take a 2D movie and convert it. Uh, so, I mean, there are, you know, as long as the people are continuing to make 3D movies with 3D cameras, then, then the, the, the skill set will evolve um, and the language of 3D film will evolve with it. Uh, my concern is that because of just chasing the quick buck and because it's easier, they're going to go for 2D, 3D conversions. And I noticed... Uh, Today, actually, I was reading an article on, on, on um, online, and apparently only 40% of the box office um, is, is from 3D. 60% uh, of it is people going to see it in 2D. So it's partly, um, I think, although, although in fairness to Pirates of the Caribbean, that was actually shot with 3D cameras, although apparently the 3D is not particularly good within the film. But, um, but uh, in, in slightly difficult economic times, people aren't prepared to pay the extra money to go and see 3D movies anymore. So I, mean, I think Hollywood's in danger of killing its golden goose before it's even had a chance to develop, just out of pure greed. And, you know, there's a very real chance that by the time The Hobbit, which is which is being shot with 3D cameras, finally comes out, uh, which will be in the, the first part, is in December uh, next year, December 2012. You know, there's a danger that might become a dialogue for murder of, of our generation. And then it comes out by the time the, the fad's finished and it doesn't even get shown theatrically in 3D. So, um, you know, I, I personally think when, when it's done well, 3D can be you know, a, a really a really enhanced viewing experience. My, my concern is that, that quite often it isn't done well. A couple of things I want to pick up on there, Steve. First, from a technical point of view, uh, you mentioned Avatar and, and, and how, you know, he practiced for years and so on. But... The other flip of the coin is that that's, that that film is just one big CGI film, and uh, uh, there's hardly any live action sequences in there that have been filmed in 3D. It's all uh, majority of it is computer generated and looks like a computer game. True to a degree, Phil, but he was trying to create a realistic environment, albeit in the computer. But the same rules still apply if you're looking at uh, if you were going from a very uh, deep 3D effect. You wouldn't go straight to another one. He would he would put in a, a, a more a flattered 3D effect uh, scene before jumping yeah. cut to the next one. So I mean the the the, the rules of filmmaking 3D filmmaking still apply, even though he's creating it in in, in the computer. And you know uh, I think I think that if you even if you watch the three, the actual live action stuff that's shot in Avatar, if you look at it, you know loads of stuff placed in the in the in the, in the depth of, you know in, within the frame to create a sense of depth. To fill up the, the the frame in terms of not just in the foreground but in the background and, and uh, I mean it, it, it was you, you can see that the composition in each shot in terms of composing for, for 3D um, now a lot of other directors you know perhaps because they don't have experience in, in 3D or 
perhaps don't quite understand it or because they just jump on the bandwagon may not do it so well from what I've read although I haven't actually seen Pirates of the Caribbean yet um, a, a not a good film apparently but B uh, you know Rob Marshall um, who's not really known as an action director he made Chicago uh, he, you know he, he apparently he, he, he quite a lot of the scenes are quite dark in the film which of course you know one of the big problems with 3D is you're wearing glasses and it's a lot dimmer I mean it's up to 70% dimmer um, you know, people have been complaining in the States that they couldn't see a damn thing. Uh, so, you know, you're right, Phil, but my, my concern is that uh, a combination of inexperience and greed is, is, is in danger of killing what could be, you know, the, the, as, or as Cameron would like to think it is, in the next step in, in the evolution of cinema. I, I don't think it ever will be. Uh, I think it'll, it'll run a, a alongside traditional uh, filmmaking, although traditional filmmaking is changing. I mean, uh, there's very few films these days that are actually shot in film. Um, a lot of productions are actually moving on over onto the red cameras and so on, like that. Like the, um, uh, uh, I forget the name of the camera now, but there's there's two or three different makes of camera Viper, out there now, isn't there? Um, Viper, which people are moving Viper. over to. And uh, but you see, the point I was trying to make with that, Steve, is that that where 3D really does work is with uh, animation, um, because obviously. You know, these guys, uh, they've got complete control over the lighting of a scene. They've got complete control over where things are in a, in a scene. And they can make um, objects within the 3D frame actually look three-dimensional. Whereas uh, if I go back to how the Ryder Cup looked, um, things looked cardboard cutout. It looked like a, a pop-up book, picture book, if you know yeah, what I mean. Yeah, true, Phil. Once of, again, I, I think... Done right, it really can enhance the experience. When I was at Sony, interestingly, after we'd done the course and, and done some shooting, we went into there. They've got a, a screening room there with a 4K uh, projector, and they showed um, some footage they'd shot at the World Cup um, that really looked great, you know, because, because uh, you know, you get a real sense of the stadiums and, and the space it's in, and, and uh, that, that really drew you into the whole experience. And they, bizarrely, they showed some footage of some dog racing at Swindon dog track um i'm not a dog not really a big fan of the dogs but uh, but i've got to say it was really exciting in 3d quite and it wasn't, it wasn't just me some of the other guys there were saying the same thing like oh we quite enjoyed the uh, dog racing footage um doing, so, um, aren't they doing wimbledon with the bbc still? yeah yeah uh, sorry uh, and that was one of the reasons one of the primary reasons why we were there at the sony event was because sony are working with the bbc to broadcast the quarterfinals uh, men's quarterfinals, the women, men's and women's semis, and the men's and women's final uh, in 3D. Now that is something I would actually like to see in 3D. Yeah, because I've been to Wimbledon, um, and it was it was my first ever experience of professional tennis, and the traditional um, camera view from one end of the court facing down in 2D very much flattens the the sense of depth of the court because it's all in focus you get no perception on normal 2D TV of how long that court is. And it's not until you actually go and see them live, you suddenly realise how fast those blokes really, really do move. It's seriously one of the most impressive sports I've ever seen, I've ever seen played in my life. Um, you know, premiership football just looked like, well, premiership football, but tennis, honestly, it, it was absolutely staggering to see it live. And I'd like to see that in 3D, to see if it actually gives you the impression of, you know, the, the amount of ground these guys cover, because 2D doesn't. It could be. Yeah, a no, good I, I, think you're, I think you're right, Russell. I think that. Um, I think that could work a lot better. Is a sport that could than, really lend itself to 3D. Yeah, I think that could work a lot better than golf, for instance, where fundamentally you have a lot of people standing at one point and then a huge open space with nothing in it and then the trees at the back. 
Yeah, that probably gives rise to Phil's cutout. However, what I will say about the Ryder Cup is that um, when it came to uh, shots around the green, yeah, and, and being a golfer myself, I know that the greens aren't flat as they look on a t- on a normal two D picture. You could see all the undulations of the green, um, and and you could pick out the line um, that they were looking at in terms of you know where they were going to put their putt. Okay, that that did work. But that, um, is that where that's that, that's sort of a closer field shot? Where uh, how can I put this? You know, the furthest thing in the picture and the closest thing in the picture are actually a lot closer together in reality, aren't they? Yeah, and and you you got the feeling of how many layers there were to the green, how many bumps yeah. and undulations, and so so that that part of it did work. But the wide open stuff, it just looked like cardboard cut. I mean, the trees looked like they were just cut out and stuck on it, it in the background, and the players. There was no three-dimensionality to, to people. You know, when you look at people in real life, there's a three-dimensionality because of the way that the light hits them and stuff like that. You, you can yeah. see that it's a solid object, whereas... Or, or gets blocked by them, in my case. Yeah, which is... <laughs> <laughs> which is which is where, you know, traditional film, they've got the lighting correct. So, so even though you're watching a 2D image, you get you get the feeling of mass. And, and with animation... You know they can play about the, with the lighting and and get that effect of mass as well. But uh, it's it's one of these problems that I've seen on quite a few three D productions where, and and I guess it might come down to how the lighting is done. I, I don't know because I haven't actually played with one of these professional cameras. But uh, in terms of the mass, sometimes it's not there. And in, in fact, I would say in the majority of times it's not there, and that's why it looks like a like a cardboard cutout. I think I think what what is interesting is. Three, as as Russell's just mentioned, and and you've just mentioned, Phil, you know, when when where three D can add value is, is in, in in things where where the contours and the and and the, and, the, and the dimensions of something are, are actually adding to the storyline in some way. So, for example, uh, tennis, you know, if, if by watching in three D you, you appreciate the art of it more and and the amount of effort and distance that the balls are being hit and how fast the players are moving, then that's great. Another good example where three D really enhances an experience. I think if you go and see um, Werner Herzog's new uh, documentary, Cave of Forgotten Dreams, where um, there's basically these cave paintings. But part of the, the paintings are the fact that the contours of the rock themselves uh, are, are an element in the painting. And obviously, that's only you can only see that. When he shot them with 3D cameras. And, and obviously, the great thing about this documentary is that in, in 3D, you can see these paintings almost come alive in terms of the... Uh, the use of the contours of the rock that they're painted on as well. And so the things like that, 3D can really add value in. And once again, it goes back to what I was saying before, which is, you know, if it's used intelligently and it's used correctly, it can be a valid uh, art form and, 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 and a tool for uh, for filmmaking. But um, obviously, if it's used incorrectly or it's just used as a, as a way of making more money, then that's where I, I feel you know, we've got problems. So, you know, what you're saying is if it's all about 3D and, and nothing else, because at, at the end of the day, um, I mean, whatever we watch, whatever we go and see, we go because we want to be entertained and we want a fo- we want a story, and yep. we want to be able to follow the story. And 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 if the content's rubbish, then it doesn't matter whether it's in three D, whether it's oh. CGI, whether it's filmed black and white, or whatever. But that's that's interesting. You, you said that because picking up on something Steve said earlier on as well, he said that um, that, that they were moving d- between scenes of, of great depth of field and minimal depth of field in order not to sort of like confuse your brain and overpower it with three D to three D. Surely that's the process starting to get in the way of the art. Because if you watch Avatar in two D, it ain't anything special. It only really works in three D. Yeah, I guess there's always a danger, isn't there, that if if you're trying to make a film f- for two different mediums, three uh, D and two D. 
that they ultimately end up being a compromise. Um, and you probably don't want to do that. And if you make it exclusively for 3D, then you're minimizing your audience, um, more or less so now, obviously, when most cinemas do have 3D capability, but, or, or you make it for 2D. Uh, you know, it's, I think with Avatar is still an enjoyable film in 2D. I, I don't think that, that um, it diminishes it's not, it. But, it's not uh, bad, but it's not. But, but uh, it's certainly, yeah, it's certainly, uh, you know, in 3D, that's the experience that Cameron intended you to see. Um, and uh, I've watched it uh, at home and at the cinema. I, I saw it at the cinema in 3D twice, and I've seen it at home numerous times now um, in both 2D and 3D. Um, and I, I, I think it's a valid, valid film in either, either format, but uh, clearly the, the, the primary one is, is 3D for that particular movie. You know, the, the 3D is purely there to just try and bring, bring in more cash because they charge an inflated ticket price for 3D movies. Uh, you know, it's, it's very uh, cynical, to be honest. Out, out of interest, somebody earlier on said, um, what, some film that just released had only taken 40% of its takings in 3D, and that might, you know, that might be because of these sort of cash-strapped times. Um, are we sure that everybody had, who watches who walks into a cinema has the same appreciation of 3D because of their actual eyesight. Um, I've put a few pairs of 3D active shutter glasses on my wife now who has crap eyes and she genuinely claims she can't see it. Oh, it's true that it definitely affects... Um, my daughter can't see 3D because of the way her eyes are. Uh, it, she has one, the left eye is considerably weaker than the right and she just... She exactly just that with Karen as well, yeah. It. So is there is there a case of only forty percent of people went to see it, but that's forty percent out of the pe- that forty percent of purely the people um, who really had the eyes good enough to see it. Everybody else thought, well, why pay the difference? I can't see it. Well, no, no, I don't, never mind, I can't afford not to. You're absolutely right, Russell. There is obviously potentially the population that who who can't see. Uh, well, if you've only got one eye, clearly you can't see three D at all. Um, but if you have if your eyesight you know, is diminished in some way, then yes, obviously you may not be able to see three D properly. Um, and I don't know what percentage of the population that is. Probably about 20, 10 to twenty percent. Yeah, maybe. it's fairly high. It's somewhere around um, twenty. But no, what, the point I was actually trying to make was that uh, Avatar was something like ninety percent three D viewings against two against ten percent two D viewings. Uh, other films uh, more recently have had sort of seventy eighty percent. But gradually over the last uh, two years, well, well, a year sorry, over the last year the percentage of people going to see the 3D screening has been falling. Um, and uh, it, sort of, it dipped below 50% for the first time um, with Despicable Me. I remember last year, the stats for that was that it was, I think it was just below 50% went to go and see it in 3D and just above 50% went to go and see it in 2D. Uh, now we're down to 40% numbers. So you, there's clearly uh, a move by, by, by the viewing public away from going to see 3D movies. Now, whether that's because they're either bored of 3D or they don't particularly like it or, or they object to the increased ticket prices, I'm or, not entirely sure. Or, or, despicable, me, or despicable Me is mainly a, a children's film. You've got a brace of kids, you're not going to pay a fiver extra for them all exactly, to go and see it. Oh, exactly. yeah. They, it, they, it's, well, the, it's the old content thing, isn't it? It's all, it's all, it's all kiddies and teenagers and, and, you know, and, 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 and men. It's not... Well, no, I think material isn't out there to just encourage you know people to go and see a rom com or some period drama. I mean, a period drama in particular could benefit massively. You know, you might walk I, I, into the halls of Versailles in three D or something like that. It would, just, but it's not there, is it? I think anything can benefit from three D. Russell was done well. I, I think the fil- point the film made is obviously it's a quite well not saying easy but easier to make a CGI movie into three D than it is to shoot three D cameras. Uh, and so clearly you end up with an awful lot of kids movies. That, that are in 3D. And I think you're right, Russell, the parents are objecting to having to shell out an extra two two quid a pop 
uh, for their, you know, their two kids and their, their their kids' friends to go to the movies that they think they feel like they're being ripped off. Plus, also small children, frankly, get bored pretty quickly wearing the glasses, start taking them off. Yeah, you know, yeah, is, is it worth the extra money when they're not even going to watch half the film in three D anyway because they just can't be bothered? So, I think there is a bit of a backlash in that sense, uh, and that's what that's what the, that's what I was the point I was trying to make about the the falling percentages for three D three D viewings. So, so, you know, and once again, a lot of the big movies this summer uh, that are supposedly in 3D were not shot in 3D. Thor, not shot in 3D. Grand Green Lantern, not shot in 3D. Um, you know, Captain America, not shot in 3D. So uh, I think people are starting to cotton on to the fact that these films, you know, are not genuine 3D movies, but are just conversions. And that's why you're getting a lot more movies that are shot in 3D, really making a big deal about that fact. Um, uh, like Pirates of the Caribbean uh, and uh, um, forthcoming movies are basically... Transformers 3D that that was shot with 3D cameras and that, I'm sure they make a big deal about that. But I think that the people aren't people aren't stupid. I mean, you know, and and they, they can tell when it's an inferior 3D product because they see 3D, you know, all the time whenever they got their eyes open. So ultimately, I, I think, as I said, back to my original point, I think, which was that Hollywood is in danger of killing its golden goose through 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 a combination of factors, uh, mostly greed and and stupidity. So uh, Steve, getting back to uh, the original uh, point of this conversation, which was your visit to, to Sony, uh, let's just wrap up on that then. Um, it was a worthwhile experience. Did you did you gain a, a better insight into um, you know what companies like Sky and the BBC and so on are, are, are having to do to try and bring this content on screen? Yeah, I did, Phil. It, it was a fascinating insight into uh, not only the, the history of 3D and the way it's recorded and delivered, but also into the difficulties that the broadcasters face in terms of creating the content. And, and hopefully a glimpse of what, what's to come in terms of, for example, uh, BBC and Sony working together to uh, to film um, uh, Wimbledon in 3D. So, uh, yeah, it was a fascinating day. And I'd, and I'd like to say thank you to Sony for, for giving me the opportunity to uh, to learn so much about 3D. OK, well, uh, that was an interesting conversation. <laughs> Again, we're talking about 3D on the podcast. Next month, we guarantee not to talk about 3D for any length of time. Uh, it, it, can, can we give them that, that guarantee next month, guys? I won't be involved in the in the conversation. We'll damp it damp like shorter then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, if if you want to see our latest reviews, uh, they are up there. Um, we've also got the SVS subwoofer coming up in the next couple of weeks, as well as Steve's review of the Samsung uh, 51 D8000 plasma, and that's coming up in the next week. Uh, so go and visit there, avforums.com forward slash reviews. Uh, we will be back next month, start of the month again next month. Uh, it's going to be a busy one. We've got lots on this month, so we'll have lots to talk about. Uh, when we come back so all I need to do now is thank the guys Russell, Mark and Steve thank you cheers, cheers, cheers guys this is Phil Hinton saying thanks very much for listening and we'll see you again soon the AV podcast was presented by Phil Hinton original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove the AV podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton and the senior producer was Stuart Wright all content including sound clips and music is copyright material and featured for promotional use only The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.